Excess for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I need a hero. I'm holy lover, a hero till the end of the night. He's gotta be strong and he's gotta be fast and he's gotta be fresh and we'll fight. I need a hero. I'm holy lover, a hero till the morning light. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Jonah. And this is X's for Podcast. And today we have for you one of the best stories that the Claremont Burn era has to offer. We are at Proteus, the Mutant X saga. Yes, it was a very intense drama, action-filled saga that was written exceptionally well. The art was on point. Everything about this arc is what I think of X-Men when I think of X-Men. I completely agree. We're not even going to deal with doing our normal explaining the plot because this is one of those great instances where the whole story really is the entire episode with one tiny exception. Today we're going to be covering Uncanny 125 through 128, which are by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. And we're also going to be covering Classic X-Men 31 through 33. We're not going to be covering 34, even though it matches 128, because that backup story ties directly into the Dark Phoenix Saga, and that's its own special episode. But for now, we're going to cover these three classics. Two of them slot directly into the Proteus story itself. The other, though, is, uh, according to my notes, Charles meets an alien plumber lady who teaches him skies are pretty. That's a uh, pretty fair synopsis of that classic. Not much goes on during it, and it really doesn't portray Charles in the best light. Charles very much is just is a baby he complains and he's pouty and he literally is drawn like a baby yeah they do kind of go for old man baby bald kind of that it's not attractive or complimentary but also funny about that one let's just get it out of the way let's just talk about it since we're right here of note to me is he's dressed like captain picard which is so fucking funny because obviously Patrick Stewart would go on to play Captain Picard and Patrick Stewart would go on to play Charles Xavier. So it's like amazing and it's perfect. And at the same time, it's horribly distracting. I absolutely agree. That was one of my first thoughts when I was reading this was that Charles looks like he should be in the Starship Enterprise right now. I'm surprised he's not. He's even sitting in the chair. It's pretty uncanny, if you will. That he looks like him, and I don't think it's as distracting as Nico, but it's still a very interesting note and art color choice that the team went with for that classic issue. I completely agree. 100%. Totally, totally. And the actual issue, it ties into something I call Christmas shoes syndrome. Now, everybody pull up a chair, because this is where Nico gets a little preachy, but not really. Christmas shoes is that terrible song where the guy's like, I was at this shoe store, and this little kid came in, and it was just about Christmas time, and he said, I have this little bit of money, and it's not a lot, but can you help me get shoes for my mom, because she's dying, or something, and her feet are tired, I don't, I don't know. And the guy's like, that's only enough money for one shoe, and so Christmas is sad for you and your mom, and the guy in the store is like, I realized that was my chance to learn about Christmas. And I hate this song because it implies that this little boy suffering and this woman suffering is just so this guy could learn a lesson. And I'm not exactly saying it's that bad here, but there are huge notes of Xavier being kind of like, well, 
that plumber lady, she did her job all right. No, when you said Christmas shoes, my mind went to John Waters' cha-cha heels, but I have a very different mindset of where that should have went. Yeah, that's a, that's a decidedly drag racier way to approach it. Much different. Much different approach and reference. But I agree. Charles learns his lesson that he might not be the smartest person in Lalandra's arsenal, repertoire, consorts. Yeah, even this broccoli plumber is smarter than him at sunsets. You know, I gotta be honest. Sometimes this story doesn't exactly hold it together for me. Oh, I think I forgot to mention the classic 31 to 33 are by Anne Nesenti and John Bolton. As per usual. You know, I can't even pin this one on Claremont as much as I love Anne Nesenti and her incredible run on Daredevil. Broccoli Lady, no. Broccoli Lady, no. What this issue boils down to is that Charles is just upset that he's not in a higher position that he wants because he's not smarter than the other alien races that are with Lalandra. But it also comes off that Charles isn't making an attempt to fit in or to try or to do anything to help. He's just upset and being a baby and pouting because he's not getting his way. And then Lalandra's kind of sensing this. And she's like, here, go on a trip with the plumber. You'll have fun. And I kind of want you to leave. You're rude to my people right now. Yeah. And that is totally a Dr. Crusher move. Very, Jean-Luc, don't you think it's time you take a few days away from the station? I think you would find that if you could just get away. No, there isn't time. I have things to do. Number one. Oh. And then, you know, he passes out and she rushes to him. And then when we come back from the commercial, she's scanning him with the medical tricorder. And it's very, Ooh. and he's like, how long was I out? And I'm, j- I'm just writing Star Trek fanfic at this point. Deco hasn't taught to me everything about Star Trek yet. So I just have to agree with what he says because that's what I'm supposed to do. Not really. But so, <laughs> so they're going on this mission to go fix something because she's the plumber. And Charles, through talking with her, realizes that she's actually a lot smarter and she does a lot. And she's just kind of basically tells him the lesson that just because I'm not doing exactly what they're doing doesn't mean I'm smart and doesn't mean that they can hold hold themselves together if I'm not here. And she almost basically kills them both. (laughs) You know, I really like that you touched on that, that there is some kind of underlying classism still in these comics. And it's funny because Xavier does kind of act like money is no real object to him and he goes around the world giving these speeches. You know, it's so interesting to me that Xavier kind of represents this kind of metaphor for the white savior. He comes in and he, to the world is human at this point. The whole world thinks Charles Xavier is a human and he goes on talk shows and he, and he goes to public speaking events and he is this worldwide expert on mutants, but he's totally human because he has passing privilege because he doesn't have an outward mutation. And he does have this sort of, well, everyone is beneath me kind of mentality. He does kind of have this inherent classism, this inherent, um, what am I looking to call it? Piece of shit dumb. And this kind of makes us confront that. All in all, it is sort of a boring eight pages. It's very pretty. But it's the kind of lesson, like I said, it boils down to Christmas shoes. I don't have anything more on this. What about you, Jonah? I don't have much more either, other than nothing really happens. Charles learns his lesson a little too fast and takes it a little too quickly to heart than someone in the real world would. Because he, at one point, he doesn't want to play chess with someone's child. And then he's like, no, I will. Because I'm such a good person. Oh, wait, let me tell you if I could do that, Charles voice. Yeah, brain hurt, psychic. That is about 40% of his dialogue that you nailed it. You nailed it. So, 
Going from one brain hurt psychic to a giant psychic monster. I think this is a great point to hop over to Uncanny X-Men. And I just want to say that 125 to 128 was actually my first X-Men story that came before Dark Phoenix Saga, which I know sounds like a very hyper-specific way to explain that. But growing up, all I had were the trades. I had Dark Phoenix Saga as a trade. So the first thing I read was something like 129 to 137. Then the next thing I read was a trade of the Mutant Massacre, which was 213 to 216. Then I read a trade of the Extinction Agenda, which is like 273 to 275, 272 to 274, something like that. So then I read the Executioner Song, which is like 305, no, wait, hold on. Getting a little ahead of myself. Anyway, I read these stories that were so spread apart and this was the first one that i said you know what i want to know a little bit more about this story so i'm going to go back and i'm going to get my hands on these issues my dad was very careful about letting me touch the magical comic boxes when i was a child and he made sure i you know could read these issues and this was the first story i read that wasn't a trade bound edition that i had to fill in the gaps using trading cards so not only do i have a really soft spot for this story but I just kind of want to remind listeners where we are right now. Jean has been on Muir Island with the Muir Island team, Moira, Jamie, Lorna, Alex, and they've been running around doing science stuff on Jean. Meanwhile, the X-Men are back in New York without Xavier, who's in space. Scott is dating Jean's roommate's business partner. Everybody seems to be aware that Jean isn't dead and everyone seems to be aware that scott isn't dead except the muir island team and the new york based team everyone else though i actually have to point something out there's going to be a line of dialogue that isn't going to make have anything make sense because gene is going to confirm she knew about scott and colleen are uh, uh, what you're telling me gene knew that scott and colleen were dating but didn't want to go to new york or call them to let them know that she is alive or that the rest of her team is alive. Yeah, this is the point at which finally, finally, all of these weird dangling plot threads are going to come due. I also want to mention another plot thread that was initially mentioned forever ago. When we read, I think it's X-Men 104, and Magneto is departing Muir Island, he hits his he hits a button with his ass that's like, you know, in case of Mutant X break glass or whatever, and it unleashes Mutant X. And then we got little bits of it here and there. And this is just about the longest long game seating that Claremont's going to get away with. 104 to 125. That's just about the longest intentional time he gets from introduction to execution. He's going to do other cute things later on. Cool on Gath, Nimrod. It's all going to be great. But, oh, and Legion. But this was, this was top notch. Okay. So I guess there's nowhere left to go but into the issue, which I actually love this cover. I think this is one of the most classic covers of all time. I think it's great. I love the giant Phoenix Raptor and Gene in it as a silhouette. Silhouettes in giant color blocks are something that was highly influential on me. Jonah, I've read this a million times. You've never read this before. I'm way more interested in what you have to say. Talk to me. Okay, so we start off with Moira doing testing on Gene. She's trying to figure out what exactly the Phoenix is what the extent of her power is, and all these different things about Jean. Because Jean, 
is still basically a mystery of what happened and how is she still alive and what is this power manifesting as. But as we're going to find out a little bit in this issue as we traverse the events of what's going on in Mirror Island before we get to the X-Mansion, Jean is acting a lot more cocky. She's coming off with this aura that she's kind of better than all of everyone else who's on the island and she's kind of like i am good she's like re- she's reading thoughts even though she she's swearing not to use that because she finds it in region of privacy but every now and then she's just listening in a little bit and she's like she listens i believe to uh havoc's thought and she's like yeah i am more cocky now deal with it and it's a little badass and also during this we're getting more into what jason wingard is thinking of they actually make reference to a classic, uh, one of the classic issues delves into more when Jean is on Greece and she meets this hot guy and they have this little like escapade or whatever. Uh, that was actually Jason Wingard, which I didn't think I realized at that point, but he's been seeding ideas in her about how much he loves her and he's going to transform her into his black queen. So I love how this is one of those things that reads anachronistically in a really interesting way. That panel of hot dude on the beach, always there, even though the classic story that explains it didn't come for a long time. So this is a really interesting way that reading the classics has given new depth to me and how I interact with this story. It's been really exciting because as much as I'm like, it's Proteus, we're here to discuss Proteus, we kind of can't stop talking about the Phoenix Saga, and that's because it's a magical creature. It's It's coming, and it's here, and it's upon us. And I'm really excited. But back to the Jason Wingard situation and Phoenix and Jean and Moira and all of it. Yeah, Moira's like, man, this is a fun experiment for me. I love doing science on my friends. You know, and it's it's so funny because I actually love it. I love Jean using unstable molecules and transforming her clothes with her telekinesis. At the same time, it's interesting that Claremont can only come up with clothing as a way for her to express herself. And that's kind of... That's kind of gendered, and I don't love that about it, but it does play out to some really cool effect. We get all these little panels of her in all these little costumes, and it's just such a great touch because John Byrne can draw anything. I do love the subtle, slow manipulation by Jason Wingard. This is all really exciting, and I kind of hate when people are like, oh, the Dark Phoenix Saga starts at 129, and I'm like, no, it doesn't. You have to go back. I don't know how anyone can actually say that because Jason is literally seeding this idea in her head i think it's in this issue oh actually before i continue to talk about jason wingard in one of the panels we see someone watching gene and moira we don't know who it is and they describe it as this man and what this issue sets up is a lot of good tension we have this man who's watching gene and moira and he's on muir island so we don't know what he's doing we don't know if he's good or if he's evil or what's going on so i think it plays really well with the suspense element of there's this immediate threat that they don't know about yet, and then there's going to be a long game threat. Yeah, I just and it's and it's so good because the figure looming in the corner and in the shadows, watching Moira and Jean, uh, is reminiscent of the figure that's been doing it for several issues on the Muir Island little cutaways. So you know something's happening. It's finally coming due. I love the arcade three parter, like I said, and you know the annual is mostly fine and. I love the extended time we spent in the Savage Land, and I enjoyed going back to Canada and all of that. But like, I feel like I've had so much build-up time, so much suspense getting to 
all of this. There have been so many seeds interwoven, and I'm just so excited to finally be at them. And then the book gets, like, crazy dramatic, crazy quick, and all of a sudden, everybody's being attacked on your island. Yes, but even before they're attacked, Jason uses his powers because he's now established a link with Jean, a psychic link, and he transports her back into, uh, like, a noble-era age, and she's looking like this very noble, classy lady in this beautiful, like, Victorian dress. But she's not understanding what's going on. She's thinking it's a dream. I believe it's actually... No, this is the first instance of this, I believe. So that's a really great question. This is the first instance of her imagining herself in an 18th century gown, but she got lost in her own mind, uh, transforming through outfits, talking to Lorna earlier. So this is the first time it's this severe. Yes, and it's a really interesting idea because this is going to play a much later part when we get to the Dark Phoenix saga, but we actually don't know what Jason is up to. He's just transporting Jean into this world, and she just thinks she's dreaming. She's not understanding anything yet. There's a little bit of tension there. And then everyone is attacked. My only problem with the way everyone's getting attacked is by the end of this issue, the three women, Lorna, Moira, and Jean, are all attacked and down. That's my only real problem is that, like, a little too cliche but moira realizes at one point that mutant x escaped i'm not sure if she knows it this issue i'd have to look at my notes i just get so excited because i look at the whole thing like as a giant cluster i think the only thing we've skipped up to this point is xavier's out in space and he's like i'm just sitting here in space oh my brains gene Ah, gotta go home and it's he's kind of like not doing so hot we get Beast just breaking into the X-Mansion and Cyclops is like, I'm going to choke you out. Oh, it's, hey, hey, Hank. And Beast is like, you're not dead. Neither is Gene. And Scott is like, oh, man, I'm glad I finally know this. And the audience isn't going crazy anymore. As I said, in true Cyclops fashion, he doesn't know how to feel. He doesn't know how to express it. He's just kind of like, he actually just says, I don't know how to feel about this right now. And that's very, very, very on brand for Cyclops. So now they know, finally, finally, this piece of information that, that shouldn't have been kept for them for so long, they know. Lorna calls them first as true Lorna. She can't really protect anyone, but she decides to call for help. No, no, good news, good news. It's kind of dumber. The phone rings and Lorna's literally like, I'm going to answer it, even though all of this is going on. And Scott's like, it's Scott. And Lorna's like, hey, it's Lorna, I'm answering. Like, seriously, it's, it's some stunted shit. And in that moment, she's attacked. Now we're getting, Moira realizes that Mutant X is missing. And this is, he's been missing for months now because this happened in 104. So it's been a while. So she doesn't realize that this major thing has happened, which makes sense because she's been in the X-Mansion for so long. She only recently came back. And she's had Phoenix things on her mind and she's got Sean she's worried about and Polaris and Havoc are there. So there's always got to be trouble because they're there. The interesting thing about this is Moira looks very panicked. She's very afraid. She's very worried. We don't know why. It's just Mutant X. We have no idea what Mutant X is. We don't know if it's a virus, if it's a person, if it's an entity. We don't know what this is. <laughs> and then Lorna is attacked. And I believe that's how the issue ends, with her screaming. So Sans Beast, the team heads off to Mirror Island to investigate Lorna's scream. Which is so funny, despite there being a line of dialogue where Beast is literally like, 
wait for me. Like, I didn't catch it till you said something. I'm like, oh, they just gotta go save Lorna. And I didn't even think about it for two seconds. And you're just like, no, they left Beast behind. There is a definitive lack of Beast here. Yeah, Beast is like, I'm gonna be a good person and tell Jarvis I'm headed off somewhere. Because he's still part of the Avengers at this point. They just leave without him, which I understand there's urgency. They don't... If Lorna's in trouble, to Scott, that means his brother is in trouble. So he has to leave now. A little unfortunate that Beast isn't going to be part of this episode, but it's okay. On your island, they have to scatter about and try to find everyone. The residents of your island are kind of all over the place at this point, and they don't really know what's going on. One thing I want to note is, as much as I appreciate Banshee's desire to help his team, especially on your island, he's going to be worried about Moira. Banshee can't do anything. His powers are still unavailable to use, so I think at times he's good, he's just coming off as dead weight right now. Yeah, there's a few too many X-Men in this issue. I love it, and I think it's great, but it's a lot of people to keep track of. Once the X-Men get there, and Jean is coming too, she's like, I knew you'd come for me, Jason, and Scott's the one who's there, and he's like, Jason who? And, you know, everybody's in an awkward, bad place right now. And it's true, Banshee can't contribute very much to what the X-Men need to do here. And this is where stuff gets really, not too exposition-y, but pretty heavy with the exposition, Mutant X, it turns out, is Moira's son with her horrible ex-husband, and his powers seem to be that he can alter reality on a fundamental level, but he needs to possess bodies to survive, and he burns them out very quickly, and he's only allergic to metal. Yeah, Mutant X is actually a pretty interesting mutant. We're not going to see the full extent of his powers just yet. We're actually going to get more of it later in this issue, but we can figure out what he was actually trying to do is... He was, he has to have a host. He can't survive on his own. And he needs to be, um, with how powerful he actually is as a mutant, he actually burns through bodies really fast. What they decide to do is they're going to track him because he's somewhere on your island. Gene has another vision of Jason Wingard. This time they're on a hunt. Yeah, they're hunting rabbits. And that's what they're doing here. It's so interesting how seamlessly this is going to blend right into the Dark Phoenix saga. And I really love what they're doing. Ultimately, Proteus spends the next few pages using his reality warping powers on people, and that's actually where the other two classic X-Men stories are going to come in. The already decently length Kurt Logan scene is going to be heavily expanded by Anne Nesenti, down to like, you can literally see the panel, they want you to switch stories. Yeah, classic 32 is one of the most disturbing and most bizarre things to read because it's literally just Proteus' psychological torture of Wolverine. He puts him through so much. And I guess it's a testament to how strong just Wolverine really is. But something I want to note is we often talk about Logan's ability to be immune to psychics. He can't have his mind controlled. You can't really go do things to his thoughts because he his animalistic brain will always reset to something very primal. And it, psychics don't have an effect on him. But I think it's really interesting because Proteus warps reality, Wolverine's senses go into overdrive and they basically are his downfall. What is such an interesting thing about Wolverine is that he has great senses, is completely rendered useless and is the major flaw of why he can't fight Proteus is that he's so crippled and he's, he can't focus on anything. And his ability, no matter how good he is against a psychic, None of that would even matter if that was available at this point in time. Because Proteus is so poorly defined in terms of his actual physical state, Wolverine's best asset, his ability to 
kill anything isn't really going to work here. Although it's interesting to note that Proteus is weak to metal and Logan has metal claws. You'd think he'd get a good couple of swipes in there, but for the most part, it's John Bolton really doing his experimental beautiful painting work and shattering Logan's psyche. I almost wonder if this story was necessary after the fact. Like, they were like, man, we really ripped Wolverine apart here. Let's defend it and justify how Wolverine can be so devastated in the next page because by this point in canon, Logan was more of a legend than anything and you really needed to explain how he could be so shattered by this attack oh i agree because after the events of this classic when they get into when we pick up back on uncanny wolverine is shaken and he's not himself he's scared he's trembling he doesn't have his snarky comebacks he's not calling people by nicknames he's changed as a person because of this and the battle keeps raging, and it's one of those things, like, I know it's probably that the bad guy is doing it, but, like, there's always wind and rain, and it's always a dark, stormy battle, and I appreciate it, and I understand it, it's scene setting, but it sometimes is kind of like, so then we cut to Moira and Scott barely holding on, and then Storm starts trying to fight back, and it just kind of occasionally draws itself out, but that's not a fault of this story, it's a flaw of the genre and the medium at the time and then we can sort of put the other classic in here lorna and havoc have a a real rough couple of pages yeah we get into the description of their relationship and they get a little love story and through this story we find out that alex is very similar issues to his brother where he's having trouble resolving his feelings but he's actually blacking out and picturing horrific events where he and Lorna die because he's so afraid of losing her that he actually is losing reality by himself. No effect from Proteus. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Lorna throughout this is pretty grounded and she's just like, I'll drive for both of us. And she flies them where they need to go. And it's a pretty, I think it's a, just an interesting insert that that's something they chose to expand upon was the Alex Lorna story. Though the Alex Lorna story does have a lineup point the same way the Kurt Logan story does, I don't love one of the changes to the original story that they made. I'm fine with men crying. I'm fine with Wolverine crying even. I don't love the depiction of Logan crying. I... What? Uh, like, it's it's a little... Don't look at me. And then starting up the rest of Beautiful, and then someone's got to get kicked in the face with a boombox, because it's just, this is this is not the best touch. But at that point, the whole team is regrouped, and we can kind of keep moving the story forward. Yes. I want to note really fast that out of all the villains we've encountered so far in X-Men Uncanny Proper, everyone we've met, everyone they fought, I don't think they've ever fought someone as deadly and as powerful as Proteus. I think you can make the closest comparison to Magneto, but as we saw before the events of the Savage Land, the X-Men were able to win through their teamwork. You can't win through teamwork with someone who can bend reality to their at their will. He's so dangerous and he's so violent and he's so vile. It's really, as a reader, it's I, I always had the thought, what are they going to do? You can't straight up attack him. It's so hard to do that and one other thing i just really want to point out moira was ready to take the shot 
she was ready to murder him without explaining anything to anyone, and I love that. You know, when Moira first showed up, I, well, when Moira first showed up in Uncanny, when she first shows up in Classic, she's just riding a horse, but when she first shows up in Uncanny, I'm like, yo, she's here to kick ass, and then, like, I think it might even be that issue where she just comes running in with a machine gun, and she's like, I'm just not having it, guys, just not having it, and it's just nuts. One of the things that's really interesting about Moira in this arc is some of the really dark implications between her and Joe McTaggart and all of the pain that Claremont wanted to confront with this. I think they did a really good job making an unbeatable villain who was a lot of fun for several issues, tying it into the main narrative, making it matter, making us care. And I think in doing so, Moira became so much more than she was. I've loved reading this again and I've really enjoyed Moira in this again, but you know, I have memories of Moira through, you know, her, her most recent appearances. So my opinions of her are formed by the more recent appearances as well. And I really enjoy her character and it was great getting to see some of what made me love her in the first place show up here. When your setting is Muir Island and you have a character either from there or who resides there a lot, a lot of the story revolves around them. One of our complaints about the Castle Keep issue was that they didn't talk about Banshee. They didn't give us anything about Banshee's backstory or much to do with what Banshee's family and or anything else about Black Tom. But here we get so much about Moira. Moira grows very heavily and steadily as a character throughout these four issues. We learn so much about her and we realize how strong and amazing she really is because she straight up leaves her husband who tells her flat out, I'm never going to let you leave. You'll always be attached to me. I will always have you. And it's just so fucked up. And it's it's great. It's, it's on such a sensitive subject and something that can go so wrong so quickly. I think the team did a really good job about handling it. And I feel like this is one of the points where the reality and the kind of grittiness that Claremont was going for shines through better than, say, the crack den. I think this hits a lot of what we need emotionally in a realer way. And I just enjoy this arc so much. So the next really major, like, oh shit, story point is after Moira confronts her husband, Proteus picks his next target. Her husband. And this is probably the smartest decision Proteus makes in this issue. For a reason we're going to talk about, but I think before we can even discuss this aftermath, which is going to wrap up the entire arc, Scott puts his team through the ringer. There is a small scuffle between the X-Men themselves because Scott realizes that with Wolverine so shaken, the he's not himself. That's his team. That's his brother, basically. He has to figure out a way to snap him out of it. And what way does he decide to do it, Nico? He decides to convince the X-Men to basically have a simulated danger room scenario out in the middle of Muir Island while they're being attacked by Proteus. Uh, he does so by angering Logan into attacking. Yeah, it's... Scott doesn't explain what's going on verbally, but he's like, oh, you're going to act like a little bitch? Okay. And then he straight starts attacks him. He attacks Kurt. He attacks Storm. The three people who are affected most by Proteus... He's like, nah, uh no, you think you think that's worse? No, I'm worse. And that does actually bring me to another really interesting point. Speaking of worse and power levels, one of the things that doesn't necessarily come off maybe in the first read is 
They spend the first issue stressing to us how powerful Jean has become and how strong the Phoenix is. And then we see her unable to take down Proteus. And yes, she's absolutely distracted by Jason Wingard. But by 127's final fight, she just cannot get her hands on Proteus. And Sean is all kinds of like, what do you mean husband? And he's all sorts of upset. Sorry about it. And... It's just, I don't know, this is just such a great arc, and we're building towards some really cool stuff. Sadly, I do think the last issue is mostly the resolution. It's another time where I maybe think 127 just needed five more pages, and they could have ended the arc. Yeah, they, they, this is, they slow down a lot. In 128, they spend a little bit too much time on Proteus's plan. Like, we talk about spoon feeding a lot, but this is feeding us the entire meal. They basically, in events, tell us what Proteus did to get to the point where he's at now. I don't think we needed that. You can figure out everything by how they already explained the story. We don't need his flashbacks to everything. I don't think they make sense. Now that Proteus has taken over the body of his father, he becomes even more powerful because there's so much emotion and there's so much energy coming from him for Joe's love and hatred of Moira. And it's he, because he's fused with his father, he now has an obsession with keeping Moira. He's going to keep her. And now the X-Men have to call into action to save this entire town that they're in and save Moira. And I think it's an interesting fight. They're not too much. It's good action. But again, you're fighting someone so powerful that he's bending the, re- the fabric of reality. And it's really difficult to get a punch in, get a kick in, get your powers in against him. Absolutely. 128 has like a recap of the first few pages. Cause again, this is before digitals and this is before diamond distributor reorders and this is before scans and getting to read the next day or hey, sometimes the day before because of advanced reader copies, online reviews and stuff. Like it used to be really hard. So these writers did have to re-explain their plot every time so that new readers understood what they were buying into because at this point, Everybody's hearing Uncanny X-Men, Uncanny X-Men. The numbers are going up and up and up, and he needs to make it accessible for this month's new readers. So I understand giving us the refresher. Hey, thanks. But this refresher goes all the way back to 104. We see Magneto bump into the button. Hey, thanks for making that real clear, because honestly, I don't know that I caught it the first time I went back and read everything. And the X-Men realize that they got to get him on the ropes. So it's one of those things where the X-Men just, it's, I don't know, like, sometimes the X-Men spend the entire arc being Charlie Brown and they just can't get the football, and then out of nowhere, they're just, like, they come back with, like, a dump truck and they smash the field up, and they're like, yeah, take the football away now! Like, sometimes they just can't land a hit, and then they don't seem to be able to miss, and this is definitely one of those fights. Yes, I agree. I think this fight could have paced out a little bit better. Scott says he has a plan, but he never actually explains to us, the readers, what the plan is. Which, you, I think you should give us a little bit of insight, just a little a little taste, a little bit of what's going on with this leader's mind that he thinks he has a plan to beat Proteus. It works. It is going to work. They are able to get him out of the city. That was their first objective. So they can't hurt civilians. They're down a couple of X-Men to go fight him. This is where Jean tries to get her little bit of redemption of him uh, sneaking up on her. But she just can't. She gets one good punch in before Proteus is able to really well on her and kind of like the arcade fights that get so cyclical 
ultimately, once the X-Men have him on the ropes enough, they leave him with nobody to jump into but Peter. And he's like, ah, I know, I'll take this guy. And then Peter's like, mwahaha, I'm big in metal. And we get this gorgeous image that I just for the life of me wish was a splash page. The image of Colossus punching into what Proteus is is just so hot. And it's just so good. And it's so well drawn. And it's so well colored with such light touches. At the end of the day... The resolution's a little fast, but gosh, this was a fun ride. This was a fun roller coaster. It, you know, maths out to like a hundred pages if you add the extra classic pages. And it's just exciting. It's the first time the X-Men are fighting someone who's just too big to be believed in a real way. Sure, they fought some space gods or whatever in Marvel Team-Up Annual. Here, they're not just fighting people. They're not just punching a Shi'ar gladiator. They're not just battling Sauron or Magneto. This is a psychic entity, and this is a great introduction for some of the crazy psychic gymnastics that the next several issues are going to bring us. I agree. I think actually my favorite thing about this ending is Peter gets his redemption. He's the one who saves everyone. He's the one who defeats Proteus, and I really think that was needed. I think Colossus kind of needed his big moment to, for him to say, okay, I can be a part of this team and I can do things and I am worthy to be here and I'm not a waste and I know what I'm doing. And I do appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm happy he was able to get his moment. You know who else gets a moment despite having like no dialogue and no presence in the entire issue? Banshee. Somehow, Sean and Moira wind up together. And it's so lovely that Sean and Moira wind up together. But it's so weird that the book labels it like, finally, a true victory. And I'm like... No, a woman just lost her child and ex-husband and like seven of her friends on this island that she seems to own in part are dead. There's bodies everywhere. Grown men were reduced to giant ants, literally. People are shattered. Alex is so PTSD'd out of his mind that he's having blackouts while driving Lorna seemed like she had it together. That's how low the bar was set on having it together this arc. This is not a victory! What hollow victory this be! I completely agree. It's a weird victory that they're trying to promote on us when... Is it really a victory? Overall, I think this is probably one of the most successful arcs that they've done. And this is the longest arc we've ever had for issues. And I think it works so well. It's maybe paced a little bit weirdly for our taste. But I think they handled the idea of an unkillable, extremely hard to fight villain in such a great way. I think they touched on dark topics so well. I think they're seeding for the next event of what's going to come for the X-Men. It's just all super exciting and it's all great to read i think this is probably my favorite cohesive run that we've done i think i've had more favorite individual issues but as an overall arc and storytelling and for storytelling i think this is my favorite yeah this is definitely my favorite so far i would 100 percent agree i think they weave together a lot of elements really carefully yeah there's some pacing issues but that's mostly the era than the actual story coming up next we have some odds and ends to cover and kyle from champions is going to be helping us out and we're going to pretty much clean up everything from Marvel Treasury Editions to a few more Marvel team-ups and a handful of classics. Then we're going to be able to start the Dark Phoenix Saga, 
some changes in format over here at X's for Podcast with a blank slate and all new, all different X's for Podcast. So you're definitely going to want to tune in for that. I do want to make a note that a number of the issues that we will be talking about in the next episode are not readily available. So we will do our best to describe those in great detail. And until then, Jonah, where can everybody find you online? If you want to find me waiting for the Dark Phoenix Saga, where two of my favorite characters are introduced, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can fans find you until we're waiting for Gene to turn into the Dark Phoenix? Jeez, you guys can find me over on Now and Again, where I do the Now That's What I Call Musics in order with my best buddy from childhood, Chris. You can also find me over on mcu.html, where Kevo, my husband, and I, the guy who covers Captain Britain over here on the network, talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and break it down into its components. And if you're checking out this many shows, don't forget to take a look at the Patreon and help shape the next things the Cage Club covers. You can also check me out at my webcomic, Kid Riot and the Riot Squad, over at kidriotcomics.com, and on my Insta, at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. So until we cover those odds and ends and then uh, fight some Shi'ar and become giant flaming chicken nuggets, we'll see ya. See ya, everybody.